Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's uh, pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we are here because we are your children. We are here because you have called us into your kingdom, the kingdom of your dear son. You have opened our eyes to the light, and we, uh, we are now those who carry the light into the darkness. And so I pray that in this space today, we would be filled evermore with your presence, that our innermost being, as Paul says, would be strengthened so that we might have power to understand your great love, your love for us and your love for the world. And I pray in this place today that we come with expectation to receive from you, that we would receive what it is that you have to give to us, that you give all the good gifts to us. And I pray that we would be in a posture today to receive, that if there would be anything that would hinder us from hearing you or experiencing your power at work in us, that that would be removed in this place, and that we would hear and receive from you, our Father every good gift that you have to give to us, especially your great gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. I'm gonna borrow this music stand for my Bible. My stool's gone missing, okay. Christians are a spiritual people. You ever meet people around, uh, around the world, who, around our culture who say, yeah, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? And I'm like, yeah, I'm spiritual too, because Christians are a spiritual people. And I think one of the things that was lost as you come into um, the, the age of reason, the, the age of enlightenment as they call it, is that we got so focused on proving you know, all the facts and details of what we believe, which is really good, this practice of apologetics, what we lost in that was the mystery, we lost something in that. We, when I was growing up in the church, it was all about really good apologetics, and I like really good apologetics. But what happened with that is I started to forget that I was a spiritual person and that I walked in a spiritual world. And so I started to look with suspicion upon anyone who would say they encountered God in some new or ex- exciting way. Anyone who would say, well, I was out praying and I felt the Lord say to me, I'd be like, did you really? Maybe it was just a burrito you ate for lunch. How do you know it's God? So I was a Christian who was very cynical, very suspicious, until that got me nowhere, and I realized, no, my my faith is a very spiritual faith. My God is a very present God. He dwells within me by his spirit, which is a spiritual thing. And so what I want us to understand is that when we have this framework that we are a spiritual people, it makes more sense when we're reading um, the scriptures, when it, when it talks about the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light, that that's not just flowery, symbolic language, but Paul actually means there's a domain of darkness and there's a kingdom of light, and when we come to Jesus, we are now the people of light. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He says, we should thank our heavenly Father because he has enabled us to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Because we now live in the light, we are the ones who carry the light of the kingdom into the world. Jesus says, we are the light of the world. And because we are the light of the world, Jesus says, we should let our light shine before others that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. 
Now, the good deeds that Christians do are both physical and spiritual in nature. That means the physical side of it is we care for the poor and the sick and the hungry and the stranger. We look after their very real, tangible needs. But at the same time, we are a spiritual people and we proclaim a gospel of spiritual rebirth and transformation. We are given power, Jesus says, to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth. We are on a spiritual mission. There are two domains. There is the domain of darkness and there is the kingdom of light. And there are those, we were once them, we were held bound and captive in the domain of darkness and by the power of Jesus we were set free and transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. And Paul captures the spiritual mission of the church when he writes to the church in Corinth saying this, Satan who is the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are the light of the world. And we have this great power that comes from God. And today as we come into Acts chapter 19, we're going to see the spiritual power of God at work in the mission of Paul and his missionary companions. As I said, the early church did many things to take care of the physical needs of the people around them. And they proclaimed the gospel with reason and logic and clear communication. Yet we cannot ignore the displays of spiritual power. What does Paul say in Romans 15? He said, signs and wonders accompanied my proclamation of the gospel, and in this way the gospel was fully proclaimed to the Gentiles. That's a bit of a paraphrase. That's from memory. But what I'm saying is Paul saw that the combination of spiritual power and the proclamation of the gospel went together like this. And that is what was convincing to the Gentiles. And that's what we're going to see here in Ephesus. That same spiritual power that Jesus talks about in Acts 1.8, that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, really comes into focus here. I mean, it's all the way through the book of Acts. You constantly see spiritual power and signs and wonders. But in my mind, in Ephesus is where you really see the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light come into direct conflict And so Paul's entire ministry in Ephesus actually begins with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We pick up in Acts chapter 19. Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Some believers might might almost uh, talk like that today. But into what then were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and prophesy. There were about 12 of them in all. Now, after this moment, so the church is kind of birthed, right? Twelve men receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. They, they know Jesus. The Holy Spirit is filling them. After this, Paul tries for three months to persuade the Jews in the synagogue about Jesus. But they refuse to listen to him, and they begin to publicly mock the believers. 
And so Paul leaves the synagogue and he sets up in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for two whole years to teach about Jesus. And this must have been in the busy market of Ephesus. A lot of people must have been coming and going and and Paul must have been a very compelling speaker because Luke says after two years of lecturing in this place, all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So that means there's a, a whole crowd of people would come in and out of this lecture hall as Paul would stand and he would teach and proclaim the gospel. Now, not only did Paul teach with reason and persuasiveness, but we also have an unusual account of the types of miracles that were being done in Ephesus. Luke records this, okay, up in in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I'm a little uncomfortable with that passage. That weirds me out a little bit because you've probably seen the late night TV shows where someone is selling you a blessed prayer cloth and if you just give, you know, three payments of $77, you can have this prayer cloth and it's going to heal you or it's going to protect you or something like that. Like, I think that, and they'll use this passage, right, as justification for their scam. And so I've always been a little uncomfortable with this because I, I see the abuse of it. And so what I want to do is just dig a little deeper in here. Like, what is going on here? We should know that these types of miracles are called by Luke extraordinary. Now, keep in mind, the apostles see a lot of extraordinary things. They've seen people raised from the dead. They've seen people healed. They've seen demons cast out. This is sort of just typical stuff. Like, it's not all that mind-blowing for them. But here, what's happening in Ephesus is, an, is crazy enough that Luke goes out of his way to say, hey, extraordinary things were happening. Like, we'd never seen anything like this. So, the question then is, why? Why were these unusual, extraordinary miracles happening in Ephesus? What we see is God being gracious and demonstrating his power to a culture that thrived on superstition and magic. We need to understand how saturated the the Greco-Roman culture was with the worship of gods and goddesses and their belief in magic spells and amulets. Like one of the things that archaeologists find very often are tablets with spell incantations or magical pouches filled with little trinkets and things like that that they would kind of do incantations over and say, well, this will protect you from spirits or this will give you good fortune or this will give you the husband you desire. And this kind of stuff was sold all the time. It, It permeated the society. And Ephesus was especially known for this because it had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. And it dominated the landscape. It was such an important temple that politicians and generals from the Roman army and the Roman government would make a travel pilgrimage to Ephesus just to sacrifice at the temple of Ephesus and to give donations to Artemis there. So this, this was sort of the dominant, the cult of Artemis was a massive force in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a city of about 200,000 people. Now later in our passage, we're not going to get there today, but if you go to verse 34, you're going to see how great the devotion is to the Artemis cult when we read that the crowd shouted in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If you shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, you're a true believer in Artemis. Right? If she's just a symbol or a figurehead or a token, you go, yeah, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and you go about your business. But if you are so passionate that you and, your, and the entire crowd shout for hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, those are true believers. And along with the Artemis cult in Ephesus, 
There was a strong belief during this time that objects could be charged with magical or spiritual energy and they could do a variety of things, including healing the sick or expelling evil spirits. And as I said, in the markets, there were people who would sell these trinkets and these charms. And so the entire culture really was steeped in this belief of, of magic and sorcery and the occult. So what we should note about the unusual miracles about Paul's cloths and, and aprons healing the sick is that Paul doesn't seem to be teaching that this is normal. He doesn't seem to be advocating for it. It is, to use Luke's words, extraordinary. So here's what's happening. It appears that the Ephesians just assume that objects touched by a man with spiritual power would work the same as magical amulets that they buy in the marketplace. And God is gracious to meet them in this belief. So let me put it like this. God meets them in their occultic practice to point them to himself. God graciously manifests his healing presence and power through Paul's objects to prove Paul's message and the power of Jesus over all other powers. That's probably what's driving some of the traffic into the hall of Tyrannus. Like, hey, that guy just got healed. How did he get healed? Oh, well, there's this man named Paul who's a tent maker, and we got one of his, uh, his sweat cloths, and we slapped the sweat on, on Buddy, and all of a sudden he was healed. I mean, that's, that's what you use a face cloth for when you're a tent maker, right? You're wiping the sweat off your brow, and then they take it, and they kind of, whatever, rub it on you, and then you're healed. And they go, well, we better, choke, we better go see this guy, Paul. And they go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So God's meeting them in their occultic practice to point them to himself. Now, this display of, of spiritual power, because what this proves is that those who walk in the name of Jesus have spiritual power. In fact, their power because of Jesus is greater than all other powers and we actually see this play out again, this display of spiritual power as we continue on in Acts 19. We come to kind of one of the weirdest stories. Pick up in verse 13. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. So he ran out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. That's a wild story. But we've got another spiritual encounter here for the Ephesian people who might be tempted to think that Jesus' name was just another name of another God that they could insert into their incantations. There's record of incantations that they find, and what they would do is they would call upon like every god or goddess that they thought would help them. So they would say, you know, in the name of Artemis, in the name of Isis, in the name of Poseidon, I invoke you to do, and then they would say this thing. And so we actually do have tablets containing incantations that say Isis and Artemis and Jesus, right? Because they started to see Jesus as a spiritual power. So there might be a temptation for the believers in Ephesus to start to think that, or people in Ephesus to start to think Jesus is just the name of another God, one God amongst many gods. But it's proved in this encounter that only those who walk in the authority of Jesus can use the name of Jesus in power. And this little detail is going to be explained further by Chuck Davis next week. I really encourage you to come out. We're going to have Chuck Davis here to preach on Sunday morning. He's going to preach on the authority of the believer in Christ. And I really encourage you to come out. And he's going to expand on that a little bit more. But let's understand that believers in Jesus only have spiritual power because we have authority in Jesus to have it and to use it as the Holy Spirit enables us. 
And ultimately, whenever you see things about spiritual powers competing, it's not really about the spiritual power. It's about who has authority over all things. Jesus, the King of kings, the one who sits with all things under his feet, who has trampled over all the principalities and rulers, has given his followers authority to proclaim his name and use, use his name and proclaim his gospel. So there's power there. But what's more important than the power is who gives the authority and the power behind that authority. And Jesus is the power behind that authority. and He's the king of kings. He is, there is no God like our God. And that's what this is proving. You can't just come in and use the name of Jesus if you don't have the authority to do it. That's what this shows us. Those Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of Jesus. Demon doesn't recognize it. They don't have the authority. And when the people realize that they can't simply use the name of Jesus like a magic spell, that they actually have to know Jesus and be united with Jesus like Paul is, and that they see the name of Jesus as the most powerful of all names, well, there's this really interesting thing that happens after this. So keep in mind, Paul's been here for about two years. There's a fairly large number of believers in Ephesus at this point. And after the Sons of Sceva event, we immediately read this. Coming into verse 18, many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. Okay, what were they disclosing? What were they practicing? We read, many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and spread and prevailed. So some of the believers confessed and disclosed what they had been doing. They had been using magic still. They had been engaging in sorcery and spells. And, and when they saw this, they said, oh, we got to get rid of that stuff. They came and they burned it. 50,000 pieces of silver. And I'm sure a few other people joined in on that too as they saw the name and the power of Jesus. But So what they were doing is they were just adding Jesus to the list of powerful names that they invoked. But the event with the sons of Sceva proved to them that no power, no name was greater than Jesus. And so they repent of their sin of using magic and sorcery. They burn it. Notice here that the believers were trusting in Jesus, but they were also still trusting in their old magical amulets and practices. And they had to repent of those things for the Spirit of God to move powerfully amongst them. And although we don't carry around with us amulets and magic spells, I mean, some people do, but generally Christians don't, in this day and age, but I do want to ask you, what are the things in our life that we still cling to, thinking we need them plus Jesus to thrive? See, what you see in Ephesus is syncretism, right? You have the old magical practices married with belief in Jesus, and it's a syncretistic thing, but I actually think our, our culture is syncretistic too. I think our churches can be syncretistic as well because we still live in a culture that, and a world that is opposed to the kingdom of God. So maybe it's materialism, right? Maybe, it's, maybe we need money and Jesus. We need a good retirement package and Jesus. Maybe it's political power. Maybe we say, well, we need the right politicians or we're gonna, everything's going to be lost. And we cling to these two things. It's syncretistic. And Jesus says, hey, give it all up and follow me. You don't need worldly power. You don't need worldly possessions. You don't need wealth and you don't need money. Give it up. And follow me. As D.L. Moody once put it, we must empty ourselves before God can fill us. And so the question is really, what do we need to empty ourselves of so that God can fill us? 
Now, this public confession of the church in Ephesus where they burned this massive amount of of stuff, 50,000 pieces of silver worth, ignites a revival in Ephesus. A silversmith in Ephesus will later point out that their entire business is being impacted because people are no longer buying idols. And it seems that after this, the church in Ephesus just continues to grow and flourish. And although we gather from Paul's letter to Timothy, Timothy goes to Ephesus later, in case you didn't know that, and it seems like the cult of Artemis, they're still wrestling with some of the teachings coming out of that, kind of all through their history. They still wrestle with some of the teaching there, but it's still growing and it's flourishing. Now I want to skip ahead as we come into the last part of our sermon here. I want to skip ahead in our narrative about eight to ten years after all this occurs. Paul writes a letter to the Ephesian church. And he writes this letter about eight to ten years after these events occur. And in that letter, he prays for them, that they would continue to grow in their knowledge of God's love and in his presence and in spiritual power. So here's the prayer that Paul prays, part of it. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's my favorite prayer in scripture. I I prayed this prayer over us when I was installed as the pastor here. Now I want you to keep in mind when you read this prayer that Paul is praying for people who are Christians. He's praying for people who he has already told you are sealed by the Spirit. He's already told them that Christ dwells in their hearts. So we have to ask, why then is he praying for Christ to fill their hearts? And why is he praying for the Spirit to strengthen their inner being when that has already occurred? It's because Paul knows that they can know the truth without really knowing it. They have it, but they might not totally get it. They need to experience this truth in their inner being. Let's read verse 19 again. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. We need to experience God's love because it surpasses our limited understanding. See, the Ephesian believers 10 years earlier had had this moment of growing deeper in Christ's love and experiencing his power when they burned those spell books and magical amulets. And the church even began with a group of men being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet Paul prays that they would grow ever deeper in the life and the power that comes from God, that they would experience the love of Christ. Something I've realized in my life is that truth can be experienced as well as known. In our society, again, because we come kind of out of that age of reason and enlightenment and modernity, we tend to focus on simply knowing the truth, and we downplay experiencing it. And although it's good to cognitively know the truth, I believe that truth, especially as it comes to the love of Christ, must be experienced as well. It's sort of like this. Let me put it like this. You can learn a fact. Like, let's say you've never had honey in your life. What a terrible life that would be. But let's say you never had honey in your life and someone told you honey is sweet. 
Okay, that's a fact. And then you can go and you can read scientific journals and literature that explain to you the chemical composition of honey that makes it sweet. And you could probably write a test. If it said, honey is sweet, true or false, you'd say true, you'd get it right. And you could then write an essay question explaining to everyone why honey is sweet. But you don't really know what it's like because you've never tasted it. You won't really know what the sweetness is until you try it for yourself and then you'll know at a deeper level what honey really is like. And the same principle applies to knowing of Christ's presence and his love and his power. You can both know it and you can experience it. And together, that's as we get deeper into the Christian life. So I know that anytime I talk about people experiencing God, there are people who have their alarm bells ringing. They're scared of anyone who would claim to experience God. I'm, I was with you. That's how I was raised. Anyone who said I experienced God would be like, no, you probably ate something funny. I don't think that really happens. Read your Bible, but don't like get crazy. So I know that there's people who just go, no, this is, this is scary. I, this could go off the rails. And, and I'll acknowledge that sometimes people put too much emphasis on experience and they, they don't filter it through God's word. And that can lead to all sorts of dangerous things. I've seen the dangerous things. I see the danger of that. But, but I don't want to throw it away because in my own personal journey and the lives of the people that I respect and admire, it's these deeper life moments. It's these experiences with God that propel them forward in the Christian life. It's, it's vitally important. So we don't want to avoid experiencing God. Pastor Tony uh, Merida writes, some are so afraid of the abuses of the experience and work of the Spirit that they avoid the Holy Spirit and the experience of God entirely, resulting in a cold, dead orthodoxy. And this is how we have people who know orthodoxy but remain cold. They're straight as a gun barrel but just as empty. And so my encouragement for you is to not be afraid of the movement of the Holy Spirit, to not be afraid of experiencing God in deeper and, and fresh ways in your life. Because that's really what Paul is praying for. That these believers would have more of God. Actually, it's probably more accurate to say that God would have more of them. Right? That, he would have, that they would be filled with more of his presence, more of his power, more understanding of his love. There's a false idea out there that the only real experience you need in the Christian life happens at the moment of your conversion. And then after that, you kind of do your Christian duty until you die. But the abundant life in Christ calls us to keep coming to the well of living water, to keep coming to the well of which is the Holy Spirit, to have rivers of living water, that is the Holy Spirit running through us. And Paul encourages us in Ephesians to be continuously filled with the Spirit and to walk in step with the Spirit. And so there's all these moments where we experience God in new and fresh ways. And throughout church history, we've actually seen evidence of this, that God continues to make his presence, his love, and his power known to Christians in new and fresh ways. I'll give you an example. Does anyone know um, the famous 17th century French scientist and mathematician Blaise Pascal? Blaise Pascal, like great, he was a man of, he was from the age of enlightenment, the age of reason. But one of the founding things of his life, he was a faithful man as well, and he said, reason alone cannot get us to God. We need to experience Christ. And, and let me tell you something that happened. So, so Blaise Pascal died in 1662, and his servant found a small piece of paper sewn into his coat. At the top of the paper, Pascal had drawn a cross, and underneath the cross were these words, 
In the year of the Lord, 1654, Monday, November 23rd, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers nor of the scholars, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and thy God, thy God shall be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God, he is to be found only by the ways taught in the gospel, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, joy, 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 tears of joy, and what that is, that's a fragment from his journal. That's why it's got stream of consciousness. That's why you're like, what is he saying? It's because this is, he's trying to capture an experience he had with the Lord that lasted for about two hours. And he's trying to describe what happened. And words kind of fail him. But he kept it sewn into his jacket up here because it was such an impactful moment in his life. It was an experience of God that gripped his soul and really changed the course of his life. It was a treasured experience and he wanted to return to it again and again and he had it in here. And so Pascal denounced the idea that reason and science alone could lead a person to God and he wrote, only by experiencing Christ can people know God. And that's really what Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus, that they would experience more of God, that Christ would fill their hearts completely the fact is we all need more of Christ's presence no matter how long we've been believers and followers of, of Jesus. I need more Jesus every day. And every day I live my Christian life, I realize just how much I need Jesus. And every day I say, I need you more. And when I forget, I can feel it. The dwindling of his presence. So again, remember that Paul's writing this to Christians who already have Christ dwelling in their hearts, and yet he's saying, hey, Jesus can have more of you. Let you be strengthened in your inner being. The point is, wherever you're at in your life, you can always pray that God would pour more of his love, more of his presence, more of his power into your life. A.W. Tozer affirms this desire. He says, I want to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present lowest state. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Desire must be present or there's no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. I think that's such an interesting phrase that he waits to be wanted. And here's the problem with living in a culture that sometimes pulls our eyes off of Jesus is sometimes... We want the things our world offers more than we want Jesus. Like Jesus is good. We're glad we have him. But he doesn't consume us. Desire for him doesn't consume us. But I want to tell you today that it's okay to want more. It's okay to ask for more. Paul's doing that right here. And you can never exhaust God's supply of love or power. You can go every day and ask God for more of his presence. And there's always more to have. You can go and ask God for more understanding of his love and there's always more that he can give to you. I would say it's safe to say most of us have only gotten our toes wet in terms of exploring God's love and there's a vast ocean that we can sink into yet. And love is the defining aspect of this prayer. Paul prays that the believers would be rooted and established in love, that they would grasp the broad dimensions of God's love for them. It's something I want you to pick up on here. Paul is not asking that the Ephesians would love God more. He's praying that they would know God's love for them. It's a subtle difference, but one says you need to love God more. 
The other one says, I just pray that you would experience God's love. That's a big difference. Paul's prayer is, is so needed for us. If, if we could understand the depths of God's love for us, it would change our life. And if we're rooted in God's love, we will not be shaken. If the foundation of our faith is God's love, then we can build on that foundation as high as we can go and that foundation will hold. It's rooted in God's love for us. How do we experience God's love? It's by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5, 5, Paul writes this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is why the Holy Spirit is so vital because God's love is the foundation of our faith. We must be rooted and established in God's love and the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father into our hearts. Paul tells the Ephesians at the end of verse 19, you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I want to just talk really briefly before we close with this idea of being made complete. It, it has this idea of being made full. And, and what Paul's doing is, it, back in Ephesians chapter 2, he told the Ephesians that you together are a temple. There's multiple places where Paul talks about us being the temple of God by the Holy Spirit. Well, there was two times in the Old Testament when the temple was so full of God's presence that God filled the temple so full to capacity that people could not enter it. The first time is in Exodus chapter 40. This is actually when it was the tabernacle, not the, the temple. But we read, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in 2 Chronicles 5, it says, the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. The glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. They couldn't enter because it was so full. And so Paul's praying that God's love and presence would so fill us, would so fill our innermost being that there would be no room left for anything but him that would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. And I don't know about you, but even when I've had experience of being filled with God's presence and power and love, I leak. It ebbs out of me. My eyes get distracted. I look at different things. Things don't stick with me. And so we need to keep on asking. Keep on asking to be filled. How do we expand our capacity? Well, we just pursue God. Be ever grateful for what God has done, but don't be satisfied with where you're at. It's okay to keep praying for more. It's okay to ask for an experience with God. That's what Paul's praying for. He wants you to experience the love of Christ. Hudson Taylor's missionary's daily prayer was, Lord Jesus, today make yourself a living, bright reality. So let me just encourage you with this. Don't be satisfied with where you are. Be grateful for what God has done in your life, but don't plateau here. Ask for more. Desire more of Christ's presence, more understanding of God's love, and more power from the Holy Spirit. That is the Christian life that has been secured for you. It is the abundant life now. That's the promise of God for you, that he gives the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna call the worship team up and if I have anyone from my, uh, my altar prayer team, if you just want to come and be seated on the front chairs here, here's one of the things that I like the morning service in a church to be. I don't like it to be just a lecture. 
So if you want today prayer for, for the Lord to fill you by his spirit, if you would like to be filled by the Holy Spirit and you would like prayer for that, we'll have people here, I'll be here, uh, maybe some other altar prayer team people, if they're here, will be here, and we'll pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's something that our denomination has believed since the days that it began. And it's something that scripture teaches that we can desire and we should desire more of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna read this passage of scripture and then pray. And then as we worship, if you wanna come forward for prayer, we can pray for you as we worship. But the song we're gonna sing is Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And so let this be a prayer, not only for this space, but also for your innermost being. Let the Holy Spirit be welcome in your innermost being to pour the love of the Father into your heart. Remember what Jesus says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the only requirement is that you ask. So even as we sing this song, if if you don't come forward for prayer, you can just ask as you worship that the Lord would fill you with his presence. But there's something in scripture about the laying on of hands and the praying for the Holy Spirit to come and fill, and we would be delighted to do that with you this morning. Before they begin singing, let me just pray over us as we enter into worship. Heavenly Father, we know that we've been born of the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, and indwelt by the Spirit. And so we're asking today that you would do a fresh work in our lives. We remember your promise that you will give the good gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we ask today without shame or hesitation, we acknowledge our need of the Holy Spirit. And we ask today for a fresh stirring and filling of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives today. We ask for your spirit so that your love will fill us and that we might know it. We ask for your spirit so that spiritual fruit would be produced in us. And we ask for your spirit so that we may be united. And we ask for your spirit so we may have power to proclaim the gospel in words and actions to your community. And so we say, Holy Spirit, come. And Holy Spirit, you are welcome here in this place in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.